It's Zach Lang Pichichi. I'm so popular. Last week on the show, we discussed the first half of our entire survey of American history, as well as the two historical novels by Larry Kramer, The American People, Volume 1, Search My Heart. This week, we're getting into American history from 1945 to the present with his second book in this exhausting series. And this one is titled The Brutality of Fact. Um, we are going to really get into HIV AIDS this episode, something that I have a serious and um, deep relationship with because of the way it's informed my worldview. I think it's one of the greatest tragedies in human history. And as Madonna says, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Um, I'm joined by last week's guest, uh, who is still sitting here with me, going through these exhausting books. Who are you? Hi, it's me. I'm still here. Giacomo. Hey, I'm still here too. Um, Madonna Madonna was right, actually. She was, uh, completely. So to open this episode up, I wanted to talk a little bit about an Instagram account I've fallen really in love with called The AIDS Memorial. And this is an Instagram account that features uh, photographs and uh, words of memoriam for those who have passed away uh, due to HIV AIDS. And it's a really touching and heartbreaking reading experience. There's photos of these men when they are extremely youthful and jubilant and vibrant. And you can see just the enormous capacity for human life that existed in these people whose lives were stricken away by this tragedy. And one of the captions really spoke to my heart and I wanted to read it. It's a little long, but it reads, Steve J. Hausman, October 18th, 1960 to September 22nd, 1991, was my first college boyfriend. We loved each other so deep and unique. Eight years my younger, he taught me everything I know about gay sex. A sincere sexual creature of beauty, creativity, and compassion. Steve discovered Fire Island while still in high school. He walked four hours on the beach from Robert Moses State Park to Cherry Grove, so he wouldn't be seen on the ferry and labeled as gay. Later, he introduced me to the island and to Provincetown in Key West. He was my tour guide for exploring gay communities and accepting myself as gay. Steve was my life's guide, as I was his, always a bedrock for each other. We were inseparably, inseparably attached, although never monogamous. We continued to have sex throughout all of our future relationships. We had a completely versatile relationship. We would flip all night long together as easily and natural as breathing. After college, we moved to NYC and lost ourselves in the sexual freedom of the 1970s to 80s. Shamelessly indulging in our true self during a period when homosexuals were hunted and shamed in society. Steve Sarrow converted in 1987, a few months before me. We held together tighter than ever in sadness and despair. Friends were dying around us, our heads spinning, living in the unknown space between grief and perseverance. Steve moved to Long Beach as he began his slow and painful demise. He found a loving, supportive relationship with what would be his final boyfriend, an operatic final act where true love and imminent death intertwined, a heartbreaking finale in the cruelest possible manner. Barely able to walk at times, chills, fevers, vomiting, in and out of hospitals, this was the final two years of his life. On the reverse of the last photo pictured here of Steve, sitting on his bed, looking cheerfully at the camera, his lover, Gary, wrote, Dignity and Courage. 
Steve passed just two weeks before his 31st birthday. And um, this is the picture that he titled this. And it is a very sweet photo of him in a blue shirt sitting on a futon, uh, limped over in what must be some some pain, um, but smiling. And then when you look at this photo of them together, um, him and the man who wrote this uh, this beautiful passage, it really frames a lot of my thoughts about this plague. Um, I, I see HIV AIDS getting strung around a lot as something humorous or as an easy comparison to make for traumatic effect. I see lots of obnoxious philosophizing about it by people like Fisted Foucault. Um, and I really cannot stomach any unseriousness about HIV AIDS. This is one of the darkest things that has ever happened in human history. And even if you hate gay people, the image of it and the amount of life and potential that was lost is unparalleled in human society. So in the first episode of this little two-episode series we did, we kind of tracked um, what Larry Kramer, this author, perceived to be the foundation of it, as well as the moral establishment of homophobia and genocide of gay men. And it all comes to a head in this second volume. But Jaco, I wanted to ask you, um, you being the same age as me, virtually untouched in our lives by HIV AIDS, what is, what is your relationship or knowledge or, or feelings about it uh, growing up in the time you did? Well, um, it's always kind of been this foreign alien presence uh, because obviously being gay, I've been aware of it and uh, conscious of it in my sexual decisions and everything, but I haven't been personally affected. I have one mm -hmm. friend um, who has HIV, is HIV positive, um, who got it when he was like 18, 19, um, which is crazy to think about like someone, right? He's our age. Mm -hmm. um, it was just like unprotected sex, but he's fine because he's, you know, on all these current meds and stuff, but still it's like, you know, it's a lot of pain and stigma and stuff. And I wasn't familiar with this Instagram that you shared with me, but it's really like tough to like go through. It is. And like see all these guys who look like they're having fun and still alive and then just being reminded of uh what happens to them and i don't know it's sad um it's hard to talk about you know i i this book and this topic and everything is very hard to talk about even gay stuff for me still to this day is hard to talk about so mm -hmm. you know um bear with me <laughs> we, we got our work cut out for us we got um, our work cut out yeah yeah i have only met a few people who are hiv positive um i met one japanese man who um he's i believe like 50 something now and he became hiv positive in the early 90s and he showed me the scar on his stomach from when he had to get several organs removed because of the effects of hiv when there was virtually no medication. Um, and when the AIDS set in, it completely racked his body. He'd been a porn star in the 80s and was the belle of the ball, a beautiful muscle queen. And he said the most horrifying thing was watching his body rot and decay and having his entire organs shut down 
Uh, his boyfriend at the time broke up with him and he was completely alone, um, ostracized from his family and was suffering and he was convinced he was going to die. So he's still alive and uh, is now undetectable and powers through on a horrifying cocktail of you know drugs that he has to take twice a day, every day for the rest of his life. But um, I talked a lot about beauty on this season and how it's a fleeting ephemeral sensation that is doomed to wilt with time uh, because time destroys all things and beauty inevitably begins to crack and become something faded of itself. And I think one of the reasons that HIV AIDS is so visceral and still something that like punches me in the gut when I think about it for too long is because it literalizes that rot so quickly and turns these beautiful effulgent men in their 20s, you know, your friend who was 18, and when there wasn't any medication or treatment for it, it immediately turned them into husks of themselves. And they'd have no fat, their skin would look like someone who had survived a Rwandan starvation and genocide, um, their eyes sunk in, death very present as they slowly went blind. And imagining an entire community of people around you in the 80s, spiraling into this and you have no power over it is um i think one of the greatest tragedies that's ever occurred and it's very hard for me to think about it's it's horrifying i mean i i can see how hateful people uh could latch onto this as some kind of oh they deserve it type thing because it is so brutal with what it does to your body and everything and um i don't know i mean it's it's kind of like <clears throat> it's uh, <clears throat> uh, like uh, it's it's just hard to talk about yeah it's this book uh this volume two has a lot of um it's so different than volume one because mm -hmm. it has a lot of stuff in it that makes me a libtard, which I'm not in my in general life. But it's like, how am I by reading this book? Like, I want it. I hate activists. Like current, most current activists, just fucking are annoying these days uh, with their causes and stuff. But then reading this and how like the way AIDS was like treated and stuff, it just makes you want to like become an activist. It does. <laughs> like, it's a mobilizing book. It's wild. Yeah. I know. I'm like, it's damn. <laughs> And I it's want to chain too. myself to like like an art piece now. <laughs> I know, I completely get it. I'm going to throw the soup can onto the painting, like the Monet painting, like whatever. Like, I am, was so disturbed um, by his play, The Normal Heart, which is like his uh, first summary of like HIV AIDS activism during the 80s that he, I believe, published uh, like in 87. It was still like during like the deepest uh, and most thorough stages of the plague. And this book, I mean, it is really revelatory for its anger and its fury. Larry Kramer is well known for his unbreakable rage that he refuses to um, dole down on. And this book is acerbic and cruel. And yeah, it turns you into a libtard in the best ways, honestly, because it is a, <laughs> it's a motivating and like spirited, like call to action to like never let anything like this happen again. And you know, obviously I've spent like so much time on this podcast, like thinking about how COVID has like separated and isolated us and, um, you know, campaigning for COVID and like trying to like get people to mask up is like not what I think Larry Kramer would have 
uh, ever like suggested because he used HIV AIDS in order to bring people together. And he did his best through his life to use this as a, you know, action, an action generating force to like create a community to fight back against it. And I think that is like what is empowering. So this book, like you mentioned, um, takes place during like the, the string of it. Uh, it sets loosely right after 1945, right where the last book left off. Um, and one of the biggest differences between this and the first volume is that Fred Lemish is now present in the action. Whereas he was just doing his research and narrating from a distance before, now he is discussing things that are happening right around him. Um, so I guess where this um, kind of begins is when people start slowly dying from HIV, like in like the 40s, basically. He talks about how yeah. people in other countries are beginning to expire from an unknown um, illness. And the the kind of the popular theory around AIDS when it was um, in the 80s and Randy Schultz wrote his great book of nonfiction about it uh, called And the Band Played On was the patient zero theory that one flight attendant who had been butt-fucking uh, to the ends of the earth across the world was basically responsible for the initial outbreak. But I more so agree with Larry Kramer that this has been developing for centuries and was present well before the 80s when it all exploded and was kind of just developing and becoming stronger over time. Yeah, I feel like there's so much of the book uh, grapples with how it was unknown that it was a virus for a long mm -hmm. time. Like people thought it was a cancer. Like there was an article, it's like rare cancer develops with gay guys, um, something, something sarcoma. I'm talking about the real name for it. I don't remember yeah. what it was. Something with a K. Um, and then I just, this second volume is so taken together with the first volume. It becomes like, a psychedelic experience because it it's like you start with all of these the first volume is very like historical fiction or historical nonfiction if you want to say <laughs> and then there's all this like stuff that is just not personal to larry and then the second it like slowly transitions to his autobiographical you know storytelling um and that that experience is just really all-encompassing i just wanted to mention um uh fuck what were you saying um with i lost my train of thought <laughs> i'll come That's back fine. To you'll come back to it yeah. but i think it's an interesting move he makes to put because like i mentioned i think in the last episode like his summary of the first like 350 years of american history um is compiled into that seven eight seven hundred page volume whereas this book uh, is basically only covering like 15 years um, in detail. Yeah. And it's interesting to me to think about history that way, which is as a stockpile of sexuality, um, motivating the world forward, and then history being present when you're alive. So it does kind yeah. of make sense to me that like, of course, like his frame of life uh, would be like the main crux of of history as a concept. Yeah. I know, and it's it's very autobiographical, this volume, and right. it goes into all of his specific... Oh, I remembered what I wanted to say. You mentioned COVID. I wanted to say, first of all, this book is based at the same time it's libtarded because mm -hmm. he has... Larry has a genuine hate for the government, for government organizations, for Dr. Fauci, which is a big character 
in this book. He goes by Dr. Omicidia or whatever is his, like, mm-hmm. his made up name. Um, and I just, it's crazy reading this book and knowing that it was published right before COVID happened because so much of the shit that he talks about with the World Health Organization with like in the first 10 pages of the book, I remember he mentions having to get like, he's like mocking the doctor who's like, oh, you have to get this vaccination every few months. We call it a booster shot. And I was like, how the fuck did he predict all of this? Like, I, I wish that he was alive. I don't, but I, not for his sake, but for our sake, I wish he was alive during COVID. Cause imagine yeah. the greatness. He was so familiar with the bullshit from Fauci, from everyone. Oh yeah. Just, he's that, that the only so one epic. who would have known. And it's like, um, <laughs> he actually said, um, because he lived, I think, maybe six months uh, into the COVID pandemic. And he said he was writing a a play um, called An Army of Lovers Must Not Die, which is going to address COVID. And it it remains unfinished because um, this book was published, I believe, in 2018. And he died, um, I think, in early 2020, I think. Um, No, this was published in 2020, I think. Oh, God, you're right. It was published in 2020. And then he died that year, I think. He died a few months after. Which is is just just a miracle. It's but what's even crazier about it is that in the beginning of this book he writes, "I just need to finish this, and then I'm done." Yeah, that's exactly what happened. It's like he had a passion and drive for finishing something, and he did it, and then that's it. His he lived to up. see the New York truth, as he describes the New York Times, what he calls it in this book. He lived to see them write a faintly positive review of the book, and then he died in peace finally. <laughs> The funniest thing about this is like one of the main villains of the book and one of the people he describes is almost like 30% responsible overall for AIDS becoming as much of a plague as it did is the New York Times. He, he literally hates, the Times, yeah. hates them. And yeah. it's their um their obituary of him was so shady and cunty as well. They literally like wrote like in the byline of his obituary like a fierce and angry activist who even had problems with this publication. They yeah, were. I mean, what was crazy is I googled Fauci, Larry Kramer, and all the articles were like, Fauci, after Larry died, they were like, Fauci reflects on his complicated but loving friendship with Larry. Like, I I watched an interview in 2020 or something of Larry, and he, like, is shitting on Fauci. He like, I feel like... Because it was like it caught up in all that COVID hysteria. So people were like, we can't do anything that portrays Fauci as like in a negative light. Like beloved gay activist hates this guy. Like they were like, oh no, Fauci's like, I had a complicated history with Larry, but I love him. We we grew to love each other. I don't buy it. There's so much good stuff about like him, about like how to break free like gays from normalcy and it's so funny because you know post his novel faggots like everyone kind of just like assumed him to be like a moralizing obnoxious like sex negative like libtard forever but the funny thing is that like when he talks about like the motion of the gay rights movement he is like really like crazy based um we talked a little bit in the first episode about how he hates like queer theory and gender studies and there's a really good quote about it. He says, uh, when he's describing the definition of like homosexuality, he says, their definitive tomes are long and virtually incomprehensible, hopelessly caught up in the growing linguistic spider webs of queer theory and gender studies now beginning to be spun. Gay will soon not be good enough for this lot. 
who will start calling everything queer, it occurring to none of them that queer is also a revolting and demeaning word and still abhorrent for many who recall it from being stoned with it in their youth. I mean, the influx of heterosexual women who must call themselves queer for special cinnamon roll points so that they can feel like the world's hottest slice of cake. I mean, amazing that he recognized that. <laughs> like, I can't even believe it. I hate the word. I, I mean, I just, queer in its current iteration just means no fun. Mm. It's like, if you go to a queer party in LA, there's no fun at that party. If you go to like a gay party or a lesbian party or a tranny party or whatever, mm-hmm. those are going to be more fun than a queer party. It's yeah, just like we're actually alive there. Like queerness as this concept is all about like locking yourself into rules and like observing. It's academic. Like, it, it's, it's just it's an academic. Extremely academic. And queer is such an academic word. It's like a Sontag word. But it's like those, the people that have that kind of thinking they they cycle through words every 10 15 years mm-hmm. so it's like queer is what it is now but it's like it, it's going to be called something else in 10 15 years it's those people it's just like the anti-fun quote-unquote gay lgbt whatever you want to call it people that are just uh, and i don't know what they want with boring. us like i obviously being gay is like a struggle like we're oppressed um that i believe that to be true i do not believe gay people are equal in today's society at all i think it has become increasingly worse uh, following covid when rain like leagues of homophobia were unleashed in jealous fury over the libertarian faggots who wanted to go party on cruise ships and have fun with each other despite the fake pandemic and sorry it's I realize that Spotify like is transcribing podcasts now. So I fake is in quotes. I'm being this is a fictional podcast. This is I'm so popular a novel. You're kidding. Yeah. They can do that now with AI. If you go to um Spotify now and you open I'm so popular up and you preview an episode, it has inaccurately transcribed preview that features sentences set on the show. Well, this episode's gonna get flagged for sure because oh, we're just gonna shit on Fauci. But it's okay because this is a fictional podcast, <gasps> the novel. This is just dra- this Volume is a drag. Volume two, search theater. for my heart, the brutality yeah. of fact. I'm doing performance art. Um, another um, thing. Oh, right. So I, I wanted to finish this thought before I got carried away. But it's like, what do those people want to do with us? Like we're having fun and like enjoying having sex with each other. Those people don't want to have sex. They don't want to have fun. Please latch onto something else for your oppression points because like. I understand that like being gay isn't like a visible marker of oppression and that's why they like choose queerness as their moniker to get extra points but like it should be yeah like do not call yourself queer like get out of my fucking space well, Go away this is from what me. happens this is what happens we gay is gay people are oppressed and if you're if you don't see that first of all i don't care about oppression no to deny that gay people like me like a right-wing gay guy is telling you, yes, gay people are oppressed. And if you don't see it, you're not in the right, you're not in our circles, first of all. Um, second of all, there's been a scary thing in the past few years where women all of a sudden think that being a woman is le- is more oppressed than being a gay male just because like we're able to have fun and seem free or whatever. Uh, like fucking Victoria Scone in Drag Race, who comes oh. into the drag world and just starts policing everyone, saying like, "Don't say fish, don't say 
just like oh like the worst raccoon of all time but i just want to say like they latch on whenever we do something fun and make a good space they'll come in latch onto it and then just start policing shit and um by the way i'm not just talking about gay guys lesbians can have fun trans people can have oh, fun absolutely. lesbians have the and, most like, fun they have the most fun it's like i would love a party with fun gays fun lesbians fun trannies and no queer people no queers sorry no queers. <laughs> right, yeah yeah that's that's the rule um so i mean things have obviously not improved since the you know fucking 70s and 80s when uh the same thing was happening and larry kramer identified it all the way back then um as he spent 50 years of his life compiling this volume and it sets the stage for the arrival of HIV AIDS, or as he refers to it as the underlying condition. Um, I found the way that he introduces its like appearance to be extremely disturbing when it features um, characters that he wrote about in Faggots uh, and showing them randomly expire and like one page sequences never to be heard from again. Um, and they just become a faceless figure in the, the Book of the Dead. Um, it shook me every single time it happened. And it happens basically like during like the big initial run in the 80s when things are just getting started. Uh, that ha- There's probably like maybe 30 or 40 like paragraph sequences like that. Yeah, the, all the deaths of even the main characters and stuff mm-hmm. are like so quick. They're like, it's like one, two paragraphs. This one, this person died. This person was murdered, mm-hmm. whatever. And that was clearly intentional to reflect the feeling of how it felt to go through this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's upsetting. It's, it's upsetting. And the graphic details of what goes, what happens to the bodies is really off putting. Um, it's really shaking. Just, uh, like, I, I think about that a lot too, because like the first volume is disgusting. It's all of those like hell bent like orgies that end in castrations and like rape castration and fisting through mouths. It's like every orifice has been so thoroughly explored and um, dissected already, and yet I feel like the effect of that severe theatrical violence in the first with this like. Extru- like there's a difference between it that makes the AIDS deaths way more impactful and disturbing than the ones in the the, the deaths in the first volume. Yes, because the the first volume, exactly what you said, it's theatrical and it's very exaggerated and it's like it's not as current. It's like historical fiction, conspiracy, whatever. So mm-hmm. it's like that's the thing. It's like I honestly think this. I'm glad that they're split up into two volumes. Me too. They're so different. Um, the first volume, I had a harder time being emotionally affected, even though it was yeah. so gross and graphic and sec- like the orgies, blood, all that stuff. When it happens in the second volume, it's a lot more affecting emotionally. Um, I, I think it's because he makes a, a really smart narrative maneuver that I think is really advanced and kind of like proves his talent as an author, which is that he is sort of transforming the death orgies and gay concentration camps in the first. He's taking that and it's as if 
him being the product of all this sexual history and then becoming like the culmination of it, all of those heinous nightmares are now like transformed into literal HIV AIDS in the present. And it's like all of it, all of that nasty horror from the first volume is transformed into the acts of AIDS that occur here. I'm so glad he lived long enough to write this. this. I know. It's a it's a fucking Can you imagine if he died after volume one? I know. Okay, so you watched um the like Life and Anger of Larry Kramer, I think is what it's called, the HBO documentary, right? Yeah, I just watched that was it like made, a couple days ago. That was like made in like 20, it was filmed in like 2013, released in 2015. He was in horrible shape in that movie. He like, oh my God. Basically for like the last 10 years, he's been shaking. Um, He's been wheelchair bound, so thin. His eyes are sunken so deep into his head. I mean, he looks like one of the victims he describes here. The fact that he had the power to type out the rest of this and edit it is unbelievable. I know. I, I, something about the volume two is every time you didn't have the heart, you didn't have the actual book, but every time I closed it, I was faced with this. Like, yeah, his big face his on the cover. old Jewish disapproving, disapproving face. Um, and it just reminded me of who I'm, who I'm who's talking to me. I know it's it's great to have his huge face staring at you, and, and I, I love, love I love that it's juxtaposed with, with George Washington. Washington's. It's incredible. Like what the fuck? I mean, I my I've been thinking a lot about this choice of cover because I don't think the people at Picador, like the publishers, I don't think they imagined that he was going to finish the book, and they were probably banking on the fact he wouldn't because no one bought the first one, and yeah. they did it probably as like a. Thank God they did as like some, you know, memorial grace to a faded activist. And so they probably just put some intern on the design team and be like, we don't know what to do with this. And they're like, okay, Larry Kramer's face. And they just, that horrible portrait of him, which is not even an original portrait, by the way. It's a, it's a, from a different photo of him. What do you mean? Like that photo existed before it was on the cover of the book. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Cause he would have looked really bad. I wish he. I wish they had put him at his worst. Like I know. I wish they had taken it two weeks before the publication, so that you could see what this virus does to people. I watched an interview. I think probably the one of the last video interviews he did mm-hmm. in from twenty twenty, right before this volume was published, or maybe right after. And he was, he couldn't hear anything. Like he was like people were like doing a Q and A with him. And he couldn't hear anything. He had the tubes just, up his nose. I couldn't tell. It was filmed from, like, far. Uh-huh. It wasn't filmed super close okay. up, so probably. Um, I can't look at those tubes up his nose. It it really disturbs me. He looks so bad, and it's just... It's, it's, it's very moving to see his partner, David, take care of him yeah. uh, in that documentary, because it's when someone's that... Like, it's, like, true love, you know? It's, like, when someone's that gross physically mm-hmm. like i like sorry for like the crude word i know no but, to like, be honest he's disgusting and i mean it's disgusting it's because death is horrifying and seeing it like literalized in the flesh in the way that aids does you like you said earlier you understand how like if you can imagine in the 80s like in the peak of perfumed glamour and like big hair and like that neon like beauty everywhere and then just haunting and possessing it are these 
dying gay men, like, rambling around the streets, coughing up blood, covered in huge pink scabs everywhere, and, like, coughing and bleeding and, like, collapsing in public all over, like, Greenwich Village. Fucking picture it. It's horrifying. And it's people, like, we can't imagine it. Like, I I wish that every guy our age had to read this or yeah. some kind of AIDS book because it's like I get why Larry was depressed when he saw everyone just fucking I mean the thing is like yeah HIV isn't as bad anymore like it's like there's drugs there's prep there's whatever but it's like I do understand I like relate with to Larry with like wanting people our age to understand our like the history like what we had gone through to get to this point because mm-hmm. you have to appreciate it. I said this in the last at the end of the last episode but like I'm very not anti-sex negativity or whatever because it's like first of all we're in our 20s we're young we need to have we need to like have fun we need to like do it now because I genuinely think that this is not the last plague that we're, is going to affect us there's going to be something else covid you know there's gonna be something else and it's like you can't you got to make the most of the time you have right now yeah there's a really heartbreaking scene where after the plague has like set in and it describes it's the piss party and um they ironically name it the piss party as like an arcadian hearkening back to the pure joy of the 70s i think he writes like it was titled piss party ironically because piss was so 70s and it's like it has this like scene of him like looking out on like the crowd of like people in jock straps and naked and walking around and it is like the most pulverizing melancholy I've ever read in a book. I was like I had to stop reading because that vision of him looking at the ghost of Eden that is now being ruptured by the rot of AIDS is unbelievably life-shaking. And he has this really specific um like politic and like rhetorical style about him where he like refuses not to be pissed off and screaming all the time and honestly i get it because only gay people care about aids like only and young people don't care at all so like i know why he wants to scream so much because like if you had witnessed that arcadian beauty like get raped underneath the floor of like straight society oh my god imagine the pissing and whining that would have gone on for like centuries after no, I mean, he's right. He's right to be angry. A lot of this volume two grapples with the disagreements he has with other fellow gay mm-hmm. activists and how they're like, you're never going to get anything done because you're not being diplomatic and calm. But I think Larry's right. I think his anger and his queeniness and drama is what gets shit done. There's, there's, this is like a well known political, uh, what is it called? It's like, it's like if there's a family of four and one of them, your daughter, whatever is vegan, the whole family will be vegan. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like you, the one who causes like a scene and is demanding of a certain thing. It will just like other people will just like uh, agree or like go along with it to make things easier. So it's like, mm-hmm. I do believe in being a spoiled brat to get things done. I do believe it takes someone like Larry Kramer with his personality to um to make 
things happen. We have him to thank. Yeah, and no one has that kind of like rhetorical power anymore to just be an unapologetic pain in the ass about everything. And like those who have, like you said early, earlier in a really pressing example, Victoria Scone, like um, because the thing was that he wasn't being a pain in everyone's ass about like something as like trite as like vocabulary usage or um something like drag queen story hour and like fighting up for the right to tell queer stories. Like he was fighting because everyone around him was suddenly and violently dying. Exactly. I feel like people will read this book, could read this book today and get inspired by the activism of it and apply it and apply it to something like don't say fish in drag. Yeah. Don't no, let Victoria Stone read this fucking book. Yeah, like, <laughs> Like, you no, know, you have to like you know like bonk her on the head with it and say don't read this. Like, don't let her. She's not allowed to open it. Um. <laughs> yeah. No, this book is good. People should read it. People who listen to I'm so popular should read this book. I honestly, what do you think of this? I would, I would say, you can just read volume two, and then if you want, read volume one. I do think it's a, a psychedelic one once in a lifetime experience to read the entire thing. Yeah. But volume one is so boring. Oh, it's mo- it's one of the most boring books I've ever read. Even volume two is extraordinarily boring. <laughs> you know, I I do understand what you're saying, but also if you didn't read the first one, you would be so baffled. You'd be with, lost, yeah. Yeah, with those like Dane, like Dame Lady Hermia and like trying to understand who's narrating it. Um, David's entire Holocaust fiasco that is a lot of his like emotional characterization in this book. You're right. You're right. You can't do it. Forget what I said. I know, but and I understand the impulse too because I need people to read these. But the thing is, is that they are impossible to recommend because they are so long and boring and frustrating. Okay, here's my rule. Anyone who reads both of these books is allowed to come talk to me on my show about it. Anyone. That's that's a, that's amazing. I, everyone should read these. I know we've yes. said how boring they are, but they are masterpieces. And there's so much brilliance hidden in these 17, 1800 pages. Well, it's a, like you said, it is the most unique and psychedelic literary experience I've ever had in my entire life to read both volumes. Like, there is nothing like it. It gives you such a strong um, sexual understanding of the universe and positions something that is rarely talked about. Uh, into like kind of like the center of American history. And to be honest, I do agree with him that HIV AIDS is like the fulcrum point of the United States of America. I think he's completely right. It registers a death of innocence that had long been spiraling out of control after the war. Um, He blames a lot of sex culture, interestingly, on Playboy, which he calls Sexopolis, I think. Sexopolis. He, he has this really brilliant passage, like in the first like hundred pages, where he's describing like the transformation of American sexual ideals, where like it's an ongoing thread from the Civil War, where American sensibilities went from like the open exploration and beauty of colonization into a selfish uh, greed of more, 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 and ruining the lives of those around you for the pursuit of yourself. And although I'm a little bit of a hedonistic libertine myself, I do believe in like being good to people around you. And yeah. I like I like that he imagines that Playboy is the climax of like that selfish greed. And he said, never in human society did millions of people at once have like a sudden sexual 
unending lust born in themselves than when Playboy was beginning its major circulation. Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting about that whole plot line is that Morty Masterbov, Masterbov, which is yeah. we've we've discussed in the last episode, is Hugh Hefner. Uh, he describes him as like virtually asexual. Mm-hmm. Like he has a lot of sexual dysfunction when he's a kid. His parent, his dad, takes him to doctors in Germany to try to get it figured out. Um, he doesn't. Re- he has a very clinical view of sexual sexuality sex experience yeah it's a machine and he his ambition to like make something out of himself with what's inferior with him his like sexuality is what leads him to create this playboy empire called sexopolis in the book but it's interesting that like an asexual dysfunctional sex person like hugh hefner (laughs) yeah (laughs) i don't know I, i don't know anything about hugh hefner IRL like maybe I don't know how he much always seems like true, sunny but... and friendly in his interviews and I like the image of him like surrounded by the playboy bunnies in the mansion like it's like a wholesome image to me for some reason but it kind of gets I think at actually maybe one of the secrets of Larry Kramer which is that he's maybe secretly sex positive but he only wants like sex in the way that like we like it which is like life altering um encounters with the human heart made real with flesh and um yeah. I think the the sex that Larry Kramer hates the most is like the ones that like leave these like B characters like dead eyed and like staring like goats like forward because they're they're never satisfied enough. And I'm, you know, worried. I'm, you know, not especially fond of that stuff either. But like, I think maybe like he is in favor of passion. And there's a really beautiful sequence when him and his lover, David, or it's like in the 90s at this point, and they're naked um, they coiled next to each other with erections in bed and they like have a loving teary kiss, which yeah. it reads it's quite corny, but it's like uh after all of the hatred and fury, it's like one of the most moving images in the book. There's there's a lot of moving passages in this volume too. Mm-hmm. Um that like there's there's a really emotional passage about like his whole army of lovers must not die thing. It's just like you know how are people being punished for just wanting like having too much love and mm-hmm. it sounds corny when you and i are talking about it on a podcast like this but like reading it in the context of this massive tome is like it's moving and uh i don't know like i'm getting into i feel like i'm like i like four four or five years ago i was so like irony and like not like I can't be emotional and stuff right. and now that I'm like older I like get very emotional over these like random corny passages and, and like, getting weepy over like, this over and yeah. over again like teary-eyed on the subway just like shaking with my kids yeah. in front of me like a psycho it's like <laughs> when I started watching Drag Race years ago I used to be so like cringed out as at the uh if you can't love yourself how the hell are you gonna love anyone else yeah and then i was drunk like a few months ago watching it and i was like oh my god that's so true (laughs) i always think about this because i also get like zoomed out and like cynical and like cruel and ironic and like like i'm like i hate all this like netflix gay representation like this is all fake and stupid i don't want to see these fake faggots on tv and then i went to a gay bar in nakano which was uh frequented by a bunch of japanese men in their 50s and 60s and they like put on um like Shit's Creek or something that has like a gay character in it, mm-hmm. and they, they were all teary eyed and they're like, 
I cannot believe in my lifetime that we've come this far. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. I'm the worst no. person in the world. Like you, you're right. I'm so sorry. Like, I can't believe either. This is a key. This is a key point of this book. It's to bridge the gap from the old gays that like know where they have, where they are from, where they have come and where they're at versus our generation that doesn't know that. And I feel yeah. like understanding, listening to these older gays, I'm not trying to, like, I know there's like this whole thing about like, yeah, listen to older gays like Alec. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Alec makes it this far into the book. Yeah, we'll find out while we, when he sends me a shady oh. message. I'll just tell him that we mentioned him and then he'll listen for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you mentioned Nina West. Or maybe this that was in Sirens. Yeah. But Nina West, if you like, I think it's a good litmus test uh-huh. for like the old gay heart. Because her whole like go west, like old school pride thing is so touching. Yeah. And um, I feel like it would not make any sense or resonate at all with a younger drag race fan they would never be able to finish this book. No, they would never be able to finish this book. Yeah. And to finish it and then synthesize it into their hearts is, would be a Herculean task of impossible perseverance, I think. And I've always kind of pictured myself like politically, like my main political interest is like as a 70s gay activist who is pursuing love at all costs. Because that is the most beautiful thing in the world. And then watching that die is what makes this so horrifying. And, um, you know, Paulia writes that like HIV AIDS was like nature's punishment on homosexuality for having triumphed over it and created a system of pure pleasure. Um, she's right, even though I don't want to say it. And I'm sure Larry Kramer must have been really annoyed reading about that in the 80s. But um, there is a good kind Kramer- of... Uh-huh. Sorry, I go was going to ask, do Kramer and Paulia have any... Uh, I Googled this because I really wanted to know, because this book would be right up her alley. I, I would have loved to see, like, a cat fight between the two I of them. I know, the bitchiest, most obnoxious fight in history that I had got to hear at all costs. I'm going to dream about that tonight. Um, yeah. But he, he provides kind of an interesting counterpoint that I like. Um, so... It was during, um, they were discussing like the Sumerian legends. Um, someone had sent Larry Kramer, uh, asked Fred Lemish, his character's name in this book, had sent him a copy of some Sumerian legends. And he writes, I was thinking about the whole Sumerian thing and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. What God was against was not sodomy, but inhospitality. You don't go rape some total strangers asking for your hospitality. It's not the sexual act itself God opposes, just the violence. That fit better with the times 4,000 years ago when love as shown in all works of art did not distinguish among men to men, men to women or women to women, but just the act of love. So much more sensible. No, he writes. But isn't that perfect? It's perfect. It's perfect. An army of lovers must not die. An army of lovers must not die. God does not hate fags. God hates violence and hatred and God hates AIDS. I really love his titles. The brutality of fact. The brutality of, oh, which reminds me, I just want to read the Francis Bacon quote that starts this book. It's like one sentence. But this is a quote from Francis Bacon, 
who I assume it's like the art, the surrealist mm-hmm. artist guy. Uh, the goal of every serious artist is to rework reality by artificial means to create a new vision of the world intensely more truthful than anything ever seen before the brutality effect. Yes, that's what makes the that gay Holocaust nonsense and crap from the first, all of this exaggeration and like this book is like a big engorged erection that is too like simple to approach any nuance and it just through its girth and firmness like rearranges reality into what it actually is like it's just a huge cock swinging around um i want to talk to you a little bit about nancy reagan and ronald reagan in this book we have to but can i go pee really quick yeah let's take a quick little break okay okay and then i'm ready to get into it yeah we got to talk about nancy purpura Nancy Reagan is a slut who's insatiable, a swinger, cheats on Ronald Reagan, takes more dick than anyone else in the entire world. All of these things are true. And there was recently just an internet trend about um, how Nancy Reagan was like dick sucking queen. Um, And uh, this book does not let her off the hook. No, his most misogynist takedown of any woman in history is of Nancy Reagan. He hates her. Who calls... Purpura, which is a skin rash disease or something. Did is you know that what that? it is? No. Yes, it's like a, it's like it's it's like a thing that apparently she had. Like people would make fun of that she had. Um, I don't know, but it's like his takedown of her is one of the most fun parts of volume two. Oh, it's just delightful. I mean, it's just good gay misogynistic fun for the most part. Um, yeah. Uh, they Larry Kramer describes her sucking off Clark Gable, which is another really fabulous moment. Um, she's compl- like she's such a dick hungry whore, and I love the way they describe Ronald Reagan as well, who is literally retarded in this book. Like he's literally retarded, and he like was just a pass around party bottom in Hollywood as an actor, getting slutted out and uh, basically has himself like a weird sexual satisfaction kink. And so Nancy Reagan is the only 
big enough of a slut to uh, satisfy him. And then he finds it impossible to keep up with her sex appetite and just ignores her and stops fucking her. And so most of her appearances in this book are her just jet setting around the country for dick and whining. Yeah. Also, we have to mention how Ronald Reagan is described as having a very long rope like penis and he's basically like impotent and there's a scene there's a lot having to do with his son who Larry says is straight out gay his mom Mm -hmm. knows uh the son's like total fag but there's a scene in which Ronald Reagan and his son are taking a shower and Larry says (laughs) Ronald got his dick sucked by his son when he was like three very graphic, fleeting scene. Um, but yeah, that was definitely that was kind of happened. Fun. It's definitely the brutality happened. of facts. Larry, this is the thing you guys got to know about Larry. Larry, uh, very rich Jew <laughs> in a lot of circles, friends with Barbara Streisand, who he calls Adrina Schweissner or whatever in this. Which is so anti-Semitic and crazy. Uh, yeah, I know. Adri- I love like, it. Yeah, it's a crazy <laughs> name. And he also, he also shades her so hard. He hates her. He's like, she fucking strung me along to write a screenplay or whatever. And then was just like, eh, I'm over it because it's not trendy anymore to care about AIDS. He literally yeah, writes that. He literally does. And this <clears throat> is real beef he had with Barbara because she bought the rights to make a film out of the normal heart and wouldn't include gay sex scenes in it because she thought it was too crass and vulgar. Barbara these days says that that wasn't the case. I'm not buying you fucking bitch. That was absolutely what happened. And it wasn't until yeah. Ryan Murphy... Um, Satan of gay universe and uh, patron Satan as well uh, ended up directing an adaptation that Kramer wrote himself. Thank God that happened. It's great. Oh, in the normal heart. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that didn't actually, happen. But yeah. <laughs> I was wondering why at the end of this book he thanks Ryan Murphy because Ryan Murphy believed in him. Yeah. And that HBO adaptation is great. It has Matt Bomer um, in it, and it has the guy from The Big Bang Theory, Jim Parsons. I've seen scenes from it. I, I need to watch it. You'll love it. Um, yeah, I, I love how much he hates everyone. Um, Barbara Streisand and Nancy Reagan are my favorite of his hated um, characters here. Sorry, what is her name? Is Papuya? Is that what he calls her? Purpura. Purpura. P U R P U R A. That word is like impossible to read on the page, so my brain skipped over it every time I read it. Purpua. Purpura. Purpura is a condition of red or purple discolored spots on the skin that do not blanch on applying pressure. Uh. It sounds like an AIDS. Here's a photo. Well, it looks like AIDS too, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Maybe she had AIDS. She probably did from all the dicks. From all the dicks. I'm sure she was a slut. Now, okay, I'm curious about your thoughts on this too, because the question of Ronald Reagan's culpability in the HIV AIDS epidemic is rife with conflict because gay activists since the beginning of history and they get excited by larry kramer and kind of go over the edge and like say he was a genocidal monster who did all of this on purpose which is kind of what kramer suggests as well as well as um ronald reagan's deep guilt over his son's sexuality so he refused to acknowledge it because he didn't want to literalize homosexuality any more than was already present in his family unit how responsible do you think Ronald Reagan was for the outbreak of HIV AIDS? 
I okay, so politically, I'm kind of like a dumbass before Obama. Like, I <laughs> my par my parents loved Reagan, the Reaganites. You know, when they were here in the '80s, they um, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like I think you could be a great president and also be very bad for gays. Um, like. You know, like those two things can be true at the same time. Like, I think that's a good answer. I don't know. I don't know. Larry is somebody who is, from what I have learned, exactly histrionic, is traumatic, hunty. Yeah. A total. Yeah, exactly. Um. So I don't know. That's my answer. I'm sorry. I wish I had a more. Uh, I don't really I have a good answer to this either. Or, um. I have mixed thoughts because despite what Larry Kramer argues here, I feel like what, I mean, okay, they could have talked about it way earlier and not like made jokes about it in the beginning. There's that one scene where it has like the press conference where they make fun of the fairies. That's a real quote from a real thing that happened that has audio transcriptions of it after hundreds of people had already died. Um, I think Larry Kramer is exactly right that had this been happening to straight people, it would have ended, it would have been stopped so fast you wouldn't even begin to imagine yeah. They would have fucking locked every person in New York and not let anyone out, which is what they did with COVID, which was a mild cough. This is a fictional podcast. <laughs> COVID's um, totally real. That's my actual opinion and not my fictional opinion anyway. I really think that, like, had they actually done something that, yeah, this, like, could have been stopped. And even if, like, Ronald Reagan isn't like the perfect target for all of his fury. Like, I understand why he feels that way and why he describes him the way he did so viciously. But actually, if you read the actual book, he doesn't, he kind of lets Reagan go off the hook. Yeah, he hates Reagan Nancy a whole life. lot more. He, <laughs> yeah, he's like, Nancy Reagan is responsible for AIDS and not Ronald Reagan. <laughs> he just, Reagan actually seems kind of appealing in the book because he's just like a horny old man. With a rope it's dick who can't come. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a more flattering than his portrait of Fauci, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, Fauci, it's like brutal. But the thing is, with presidents, at a certain point, I feel like most people know this, but the presidents kind of, you kind of don't do shit when you're a president. Like, no. you, like you have power, but it's like, I mean, we're seeing this right now with Biden. And I don't even want, I don't talk about Biden. No, but you're right. Like presidents don't actually have power. They're just like a, a, a signifying cultural image for the country at the time. So it makes sense that Biden would be president because, you know, everyone's old and can't do anything and is half asleep and uh, masking up. And then, you know, Donald Trump is like a beautiful cultural image that makes sense um, for decadence and joy. Uh, and Ronald Reagan makes sense for this era as well as a, kind of vaguely incompetent, retarded, horny old guy who doesn't know where he is or what he's talking about. And uh, his wife is uh, going out doing big hair 80s blowjobs all the time. Yeah, and you know what? If Trump was president during AIDS, Trump would have done a shit. He would have done a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> I, know, I know he would have. Because he like, you know, he's, he, anyway. You know, you're right. Um <laughs> There's a whole lot more that goes on here, but most of the book is them arguing about medication and arguing. It's a lot of arguing between different political factions. Um, 
it goes on for about 200 pages of the book that is just like back and forth disagreements and Larry Kramer's kind of rage and, and frustration with it. Yeah, there's a lot of... So actually, we haven't mentioned this, but volume two is split into two parts. Yes, and the first volume is not. No, but the first part of volume two feels like a continuation of volume one. Yes. It kind of has that same just history and a lot of parts that are exaggerated. We're not really sure what's fiction, what's not. Mm -hmm. And then the second part is when he introduces Fuck You, the organization yeah which is act 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 and then then it becomes extremely autobiographical Mm -hmm. and um just uh i don't know it becomes interesting because i like again i kept fact checking throughout my reading and a lot of the stuff in the latter half of this novel volume is totally true Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of really well presented images i really like reading this as a like a novel and in the format it's in because the act up um like activism they did is like so theatrical and exciting um like when they like put a bunch of coffins up inside of a highway to stop people from driving or when they dyed chicken bones and ash and threw it um all across like a uh, lawn of the White House. Yeah, and populated areas yeah. saying, these are the people you killed. I know, that, that's what I was saying earlier. Like, I hate that kind of activism, activism today, but it kind of made me rally behind it. I would like, it's so rich. I mean, that it's so real. I love it. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I'm obsessed with it. It's such a compelling image. I wish that we could apply some of that energy into anything now, but it's all worth shit there's nothing worth applying that energy into except for mode like trying to get people to fuck more and like go outside and have a drink with their friends yeah basically the end of the novel is kind of weird i don't know what you made of this uh it has like david um larry kramer's lover like making a case to the supreme court about how this was a genocide uh and then he gets shot at the very end of the novel and the narrator of HIV AIDS who appears uh, throughout this book, as well as the first volume uh, says, I got my happy ending after all. Yeah. I mean, what I made of it was that I read it and it really had no effect on I me. Like, I don't know if, it was, if it was meant to be like a shocking ending, I just feel like it just, it was like every other main character in the book. The death was so quick mm. and so on a like not affecting emotionally compared to all the emotional shit that happens when he was whenever he talks about (laughs) love or beautiful handsome men dying and they're all chested men dying yes yeah like brutal ways that stuff was emotional and i feel like he purposely the ending the ending was like whatever to me Mm -hmm. like like, forget it like i forgot that he was shot basically and it was just like He's just like, let me wrap this up. I'm about to die. Yeah, that's my impression as well. And I kind of do like the ambivalence of the ending because history is ongoing forever. Um, There is nothing he could possibly say that would put a proper cap on it. But there's a good quote um, on like page 864, right near the end, where he says, all of us are made up of history and few of us are likely to study it nearly enough. I sometimes think so anxious are we to move ahead with everything quote, to get on with it, unquote, as the English say, that we are, also as the English say, 
hoisted with her own petards. I don't know if that's the way you say that word. Even now, as too many think the worst is over, I'm still making notes knowing that it's not. There are many ways to relate a history, to organize and structure the information a foolish man labels the facts his research has discovered. History is never so neat and compliant as to allow itself to be rendered that coherently. I am trying to finalize what you've read. I have included a goodly portion of my own history, not because I have had such a noteworthy life, but because I still hear voices. I can't get them out of my head. Dead lovers, dead friends, the murderers, lots of murderers. I write our history because it is an obligation I owe to myself, my past, my people, my husband, David. There is never a day when I wavered from this decision. Yeah, that uh, the end of the book becomes very meta because it's mm-hmm. a lot of like Fred's book, and it's like him talking about himself finishing this book, and like the shift to the focus on his husband and this random trial regarding the black and a white act or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just like it kind of it feels unfinished and I feel like it kind of represents his feelings towards the history of AIDS. Mm-hmm. I, he felt like it wasn't finished. He wanted there to be a cure. He never got that. We still right. don't have it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, that's exactly how it is. It, it's depressing because AIDS does it's get a- its happy ending. Like, it won, like, unfortunately, there's no cure yet. We're not close. That most recent clinic, like, a uh, trial just, like, failed. Um, and I think Larry Kramer did his best in the last years of his life to try to exercise his feelings on this whole matter and resolve his guilt over his uh, own culpability in it, as well as present, like, an overall a portrait that he believes is the entire culmination of American history and him doing it with this bludgeon to the head, extremely violent, uncomfortable, an endless novel. I mean, it, it couldn't end, you know, right, because it didn't. That's just how things went, and now it's over. I know. But, you know, I have to disagree with... I don't think AIDS got its happy ending, because I think that we live in a day and age in which it's not the threat it was. Mm-hmm we are able to have crazy sex and do <laughs> fun stuff. And Larry, I, I feel for him because he went through it and he was writing this as his body was decaying from the virus. And uh, in his life, AIDS won. Um, and he, he, we talked about this video as a general sex negative view. Um, but I think for the most of us, like AIDS is still a thing. Like, you know, if you, you know, mm-hmm. you can get HIV, um, but, and it's not great, but it's not the threat it was. So no. I think we have, there is a, I'm trying to like be a little positive. I think that's the right <laughs> no thing pun, to do. No pun intended. <laughs> I think that. <laughs> but he's, he doesn't even realize that he kind of beat AIDS himself by managing to survive long enough to compile his he, dream project. He, this book him finishing volume two is a triumph over AIDS. the fact that it's published in print and you can buy it when 
this would usually end up in the self-published trash heap of Amazon if he had been anyone else. I mean, that would be one of the great tragedies of, of history if that had happened. But he made enough of a name of himself and he fought hard enough to not only like live and have love in his life and see the problem become largely mitigated in most ways and then compile every passage of his heart and his entire history um, and ancestry into this volume. I mean, that I think is, is a triumph over AIDS. And I, I wish he kind of could have seen it himself, but if I was also dying and unsure if I was going to get the last hundred pages of this like meta Evangelion episode 26 spiral out, like I would probably be a little despondent too. I mean, he, the AIDS drugs kept him alive enough to write this. And he spent 40-something years of his life writing this. Mm -hmm. And no one's... You and I, 26-year-old gay guys that are, like, on generations behind him... Yeah, generations behind him, on opposite sides of the world, thinking about it, taking his worldview into our own, and, like, carrying it with us. I mean, that's, like, the only, like, gift I can give him at this point to thank him for what he did. Right, and he was so hated. He got so much hate throughout his life for being for believing in what he believed, but he also had supporters. Uh-huh. And um, he, I fucking love these books. I'm so glad that you made me read them <laughs> um, because I do feel like a special part of something that is like carrying on his legacy. He spent anyone who spent that much time writing something and put that much passion into it. I feel like deserves a read like it took me what mm. it took me like what five six months to read this because i'm a slow reader i don't read like you do i know you read a lot of shit <laughs> but I <haven't, laughs> this like, took me like i it took me two months to get through both of these yeah i mean i like you anyone can pick them up and just you know make their way through them over the course of ooh, as long as they want and um i do think it's important to carry on his message and mm-hmm. all this work that he put in like i feel like there's something beautiful when generational gap gays appreciate each other's art yeah from decades before like in 50 years hopefully there's some two kids listening to i'm so popular being like who's this zach langley faggot exactly well i mean that's how history works in larry kramer's mind too is that like you carry the consequences and actions of all of history inside of you whether you know it or not culture is a living organism that has the input of thousands of years of spoken and written history animating it and if you're not going to like contribute in some way by at least remembering it and like commenting on it you'll let all of the violence of like the blood orgies in the first volume and more importantly the very real 100 actual plague of aids you will let all of it go and it will all be for naught so uh, you know podcasts are quite ephemeral and uh you know i'm gonna make sure that you know one day of this project ever ends which is not looking like it's going to at this rate um that you know it exists in the future for someone to you know come across but you know this is uh, one of the last episodes this season i'm almost done here and uh i've been re-philosophizing all of this art so that we can create a new world together and Jaco, i need to know what you think i should carry from this into the new world 
Oh my God, what a big question. I know. Everyone says Jesus that every time. Christ. They say, what a big question. And then they're stunned silent for two minutes. Well, I do think my general takeaway, as I said last week on the show, um, it's have fun. <laughs> Don't have fun, have sex. And uh, I don't know if that's a takeaway Larry wanted you to have, but I think it's a takeaway that he gave us the right to have, even mm-hmm. if he, even if his downer energy didn't necessarily outline it for us. So have fun, have sex, um, and do it. So before the next plague, I'm such a I'm such a black pilled. I I like your black pilled s- plague fearer. I am. I do. I just know they're going to like l- unleash something in the next like 10, 20 years. Yeah, because they got away with it once with COVID. Like, we're, you know, something worse is bound to happen. Um, and when I first started the show, um, I literally felt like we were in the end times. That has, I, I think I've said that from the very beginning is like, I feel like I need to do something to archive my thoughts and my view of the world before it's too late because things have been getting worse for so long um and it's easy to like feel that way and then spiral into you know negativity and narcissism and hatefulness towards the world but it's just as easy to swallow that down realize that you know maybe this human experiment doesn't have all that much time left and then in the middle of that look what's around you and then get something from it and as well as that understand everything that led us up to this point to the best of your ability like reading stuff about and from the past and respecting and listening to the you know voices of those who suffered and you know died violent deaths before you did so that you're allowed to live in the way you can now yeah i mean as for we kept i know we kept repeating that this book is boring but it's boring and it's not it's like Uh it's you feel like you're reading a part of something important especially if you're gay and you're listening um it feels like part of your history and so and larry's right this shit is not taught anywhere no i never Um, i didn't even learn about hiv aids in high school uh i, I went did, to a bad school it was like, yeah. <laughs> i went i went to like a one of those like new age progressive i did too like they, they actually they had a they had a guy with aids or hiv come and talk to our school and he graphically talked about this is when we were like 13 14 freshmen you uh-huh. like he talked to the whole school he talked about his hookup in which he was like graphically describing bottoming for this guy or whatever and then all these parents at my school got really upset because they were like they they went to the head of school and were like how dare you bring this guy talk about graphic sex these children the kids and like all like us like 13 14 year olds were like whatever like we know we didn't give a fuck but the parents were so outraged um but that actually did leave an impression on me i'm sure it did did it it worked because I was very scared. Even when I was hooking up with girls, I was like scared of getting HIV. Uh-huh. I was like, 
I gotta use condoms, like, you know. That's great. No glove, no glove. <laughs> I'm thank God he did that. Let's all right. Here's my new prescription. All right. Every single school has to have a league of like <laughs> HIV positive men come in and scare them into condom sex. I know, right? I mean, it's like I need to find what that guy's name was. I'll find it. Yeah, let's get him on the pod. I'll ask him. <laughs> he would come on the pod. I don't know. He's some random Jewish guy that's talking about having AIDS. He... Larry Kramer? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. This was like a theater gay. <laughs> oh, great. So was he. He wrote that fucking play. <laughs> oh, my God. I just can't believe all. This has been a really expansive conversation. Um I think it's amazing. I think America is an amazing country and it's because of all of that blood and orgy and HIV and the ability to synthesize that into history, be enough of a pain in the ass of literally everyone you encounter and then still publish a magnum opus on your deathbed is that's my American dream is to live so passionately and fiercely for what you believe in take the entire history of the country, rip it apart, and then make your own fucking book with it. Spot on. This has been an incredible... Yeah. Oh, you want to say something? No, no, go ahead, please. please. I was just going to say, this is... First of all, thank you for inviting me on. My pleasure. So, it could, it literally so couldn't bad. have been anyone else. <laughs> because no one else in the world has finished books before. <laughs> I'm glad it was your last pick to talk about put through this torturous hellscape. But You're I'm, the second, to be I'm fair. <laughs> um i i'm so glad that we did this i love that this conversation or these two weeks or episodes or whatever kind of reflected the books themselves I agree. in terms of the way the conversations went um but yeah thank you Jocko. You close it out yeah thanks i do i'm going to read an exhaustively long passage here and like you said to kind of emulate the nature of the books you have to listen to all of it um this is about halfway through the book and larry kramer writes an army of lovers must not die fred continues compiling his list all right here we go <clears throat> eddie pasquale mount schultz x brett adams carmen alicio Brandy Alexander, Justin Alexander, Reverend Charles Angel, Way Bandy, Jim Beck, Michael Bennett, Jim Boatwright, Mel Boozer, Bobby Borland, Arthur Bresson, Michael Brody, Roscoe Brown, Alan Bushbaum, Jody Callahan, Bobby Campbell, Lynn Carter, Henry Chenoff, Tony Clavelli, Alessandro Abri's lover X, Ben Cotispotti, John Congers, Coppola, Vinnie Coppola of Newsweek's brother, um, Jose Corks, Terry Costello, Richmond Crinkley, Jeffrey Crowland, Joel Crothers, Carl Culver, a.k.a. Casey Donovan, Kurt Dawson, X, Larry Deason, Steve DeRay, Robert Denning, Harry Diaz, Ron Dude, X, Angelou Donghia, Dr. Larry Downs, Robert Drevis, John Duca, X, Donald Driver, Richard Dulong, Alan Dumont, lover of Bruce K, Perry Ellis, Bill Elliott X, Kelly English, Nathan Fain, Mel Fonte, Artie Felsen, Robert Farrow X, Ron Field, Gary Fifield, Peter Finesca, Bob Fracina, Ray Ford, Michelle Foucault, Xavier Forcade, 
Brad Frandensen, Stan Freeman, Carton Fuller, Herb Gaines, Armando Galvez, Flamingo DJ, Ken Gaston, bar owner, Mort Gindy, Larry Goldberg, Bob Golden, Bruce Neal's roommate, Lee Goodman, Herb Gower, Paul Graham, Tallinn Green, Michael Greer, Richard Green X, Peter Grimes, Michael Grumley, Sam Hadid, Jack Hedia, Jack Hefton, Larry Henry, lover of Rick Jansen, already dead, Emery Hetrick, Colin Higgins, Kevin Higgins, Anthony Holland, Fritz Holt, Roger Horwitz, Paul Monette's lover, Peter Huger, David Jackson, Paul Jacobs, concert pianist, Steve Jacobs, Alice's hairdresser, Robin Jacobson, X, Rich Jansen, X, Tom Jefferson, Robert Jeffrey, Tom Johnson, Harry Kalkanas, John David Wilder's lover, Jim Camel, Billy Bernardo's lover, Stan Kamen, Adrena's agent, Bruce Kay, Ed Nudson, architect of GMPA office, Bill Krause, Donald Krinsman, Barry Lane, Leon Lambert, X, Ralph Landis, Phil Lanzaretta, Robert Letourneau, Steve Lax, Wilfred Leach, Jean Lager, Bob Lemond, Ron Los, X, Larry Lenindo, X, Diego Lopez, Charles Ludlam, Jim McCabe, lawyer for Paul Weiss, Joe McDonald, Phil Magdaleni, Michael Moletta, Phil Mandekeller, Royal Marks, Leonard Matlovic, Court Miller, Ed Moore, Fireman, Norm Rathweg's friend, John Myers, Paul Myers, Jack Now, Max Navarre, Hugo Niehaus, X, Frank O'Dowd, Larry O'Keen, Don Otto, Kevin Patterson, Phil Patrick, John Peckerman, Glenn Person, Michael Pekin X, David Poole, Dan Popovic, Gold Speculator Friend of Vowels, Reuven Proctor-Levy, Tarsh's Old Boyfriend, Shelley, Paul Rapport, Donnie, Tony Rappa X, Norman Rathweg, Stephen Richards, Jim Racer, Dora Dole, Michael Riley, Michael Rock, Nick Rock, Ed Roginski, Sue Barton's boss at Universal, Bertram Bellberg, the Divine Bella, Bernie Rubestein, Harvey Sofkowski, Jonathan Sand, Louis Sanjura X, Paul Sanson X, Neil Sandstead, Channel 13 Art Department, friend of Harvey Marks, Sash Santoro, Bruce Savin X, Michael Sklar, Carol Sleds, Bob Alfandre's lover, Douglas Smith, Yada Gala, Justin Smith X, Willie Smith, Ray Spellman X, Charlie Springman X, David Summers, Micah Taylor, Carl Thompson, Bruce Thompson, Jacques Tafoe, X, David Tote, Bill Toe, Tom Hatcher's old lover, Orsi Ullman, Pfeffer de Roma's best friend, Richard Umans, X, Richard Boo Bronstein, Tom Victor, Peter Volger, Don, Dr. Tom Waddle, Sam Wagstaff, Bill Whitehead, Lou Walker, X, Cade Ware, Stephen Webb, Bruce Weintraub, Rick Welikoff, Ron Wilson, Decorator, L.A., Steve Wallen, Lee Wright, Howard Bruckner, Tom Victor, Tony Lambert, Rick Horton, X, Dr. Barry Gingell, Peter Evans, Perky Feinstein. An X after the names above means I had sex with them at some point in time, or went to bed with them, or made love with them. We, who had once been called hush markets, still don't know what to call what we've been doing.